0: This podcast is sponsored by MSA Globe. At MSA, your health and safety drive us to develop advanced safety equipment with performance and protection in perfect balance. Like Globe Athletics, the latest innovation in turnout gear. Developed as Athletic Gear for Firefighters, Athletics uses unique stretch fabrics that provide body contoured fit for unprecedented range of motion and flexibility. It's lighter weight, less bulky, and provides the protection you need from your Globe turnout gear. Get the full story at com slash globe. Hello and welcome
1: to Today on Firehouse. I'm Peter Matthews, editor of Firehouse Magazine. And uh, today we're excited to have uh, Jonathan Baxter, a lieutenant from the San Francisco Fire Department. Uh, Jonathan uh, is the uh, recipient of the 2019 uh, Thomas Carr uh, Community Service Award, which is a part of the Firehouse Valor uh, and Community Service Award program. Um, Jonathan is a... Um, a long time member of the San Francisco fire department. We work with him extensively on, on, on various pieces of content on the site, whether it's the run surveys or stories about San Francisco fire. Um, and also, uh, he's been a great help to, to get us some information uh, about some of the programs going on uh, that we've been able to, to cover over the years. So, so Jonathan, uh, you know, welcome to the podcast today and thank you for joining us. I know, uh, your, your time, um, based on this, uh, submission uh, for you. Your time is really limited. It seems like you're running 24-7. So, I appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. So, I I just want to kind of set the tone for the podcast today. Um, And and throughout the podcast, I'll kind of read parts of the submission that that were made uh, for Jonathan. And then we'll just let Jonathan talk to some of the points um, about the nomination and and why uh, he was the recipient for this year's award. So, during during the submission it says uh, lieutenant baxter has transformed the reactive posture of the san francisco fire department into one of preemptive and preventive community engagement if you were to view all the activities lieutenant baxter is responsible for you would think he has a, a battalion at his disposal to carry out his mission and that's not a battalion chief that's a battalion um it finishes with he does not in fact he is truly an army of one so jonathan tell us um about how you got involved with the fire service, and then let's let's transition from there into uh, you know your your career in the fire service. Let, let's let's go from when you first started until uh, today. Well, yeah. So I actually
2: started off in um, a law enforcement as a police explorer in the city of Paso Robles, and uh, that was my career route. Uh, and when I turned uh, eight to well, at 17, I graduated high school and was able to get my EMT class and certificate uh, just shortly after uh, I turned 18 and realized that I can't go into the police academy or put an application for a police department and back then they didn't have cadets or community service officers until you were 20 and a half. Um, So uh, growing up in in a rural area past Robles where we had um, paid call firefighters uh, and uh, San Luis Ambulance Company, they started to allow me to do ride alongs with them and i was extremely interested in there and and uh, collaterally got picked up as a paid call firefighter uh early into my 18th birthday actually a, a day after my 18th birthday and uh, awesome. the ball was rolling from from that point on and uh i was almost a fast track as um i i got Uh, asked to join a a paramedic program in Monterey. They needed 10 members. It was a trial um, uh, paramedic program with Community Hospital of Monterey Peninsula where they had uh, some doctors and uh, some seasoned instructors coming in to uh, teach the program. And I needed $10,000. So I actually had a neighbor who uh, paid for my paramedic school, which I eventually paid back. Oh. when I was 18 years old and uh, was actually one of the youngest paramedics for a few months in the state of California, um, I went on to work for a Golden Empire Ambulance in Bakersfield that hired me uh, full-time. And uh, while I was there, I saw a flyer at the EMSA agency and I can't remember what I was doing at the EMSA agency. And it was for Sonoma City Fire Department, um, and I was like, "Well, I'll put an application in for for that." It was fire department and paramedic, and put my application in with them when I was uh, 19 and a half years old, and um, I got hired to to my uh, amazement at that young age, and uh, my career basically rolled uh, as a firefighter paramedic with that um, that agency, and you know that was a progressive, uh, new fire-based EMS system is extremely busy with, with uh, trauma, uh, with uh, Highway 37, Sears Point Raceway, Highway 121, head-on collisions. We were flying patients out with mass trauma left and right, but on top of that, we had the tourism, uh, huge uh, geriatric population, so your strokes and your heart attacks and your um, your basic medical emergencies were uh, prevalent, so a lot of experience gained there on uh, firefighting and EMS care. Uh, and you know, firefighting on the one hand is you arrive on scene with with an ambulance with two people on an engine with two people, and your next in engine company is maybe five to up to ten minutes away. So lots of first in, initial size up, scene safety, situational awareness uh, experience that that I was able to gain there. Uh, Collaterally, I was able to obtain my AS degree in fire science during that time period as well as my uh, basic fire officer certifications and um, decided uh, at a point to uh, test out to a bigger department um, that had more options as the department I was at was a a one station department um, (laughs) at the time and uh, my uh, ambitions were getting pretty high. I was about uh, 27 years old and took a test with the uh, City of Hayward Fire Department and um, got picked up with the City of Hayward Fire Department which is an amazing department. If if you want to talk progressiveness and professional and just uh, having everything dialed down to how a department needs to do things right, that was Hayward Fire. And I knew, wow, this is a great fit for me at Hayward mm-hmm. Fire. Now, at my own nemesis because i off probation. I'm at Hayward Fire for a few years and my buddies are in San Francisco and they were like, hey, they need paramedics. So they're gonna allow for the first time ever laterals into San Francisco. So wow. I I've always I've always heard and I still continue to hear to this day people who are in smaller departments, um basically saying, you know what, there's three departments I wanna work for San Francisco, LA, or New York. Not necessarily in that order. I'm gonna be biased and say San Francisco first. Um, so the light bulbs went off and the eyes got wide open and I put my application in and uh, literally got a phone call and said okay you're hired we need you here on Monday and I was like um I need more time to think about it and they're like okay well we're gonna pass you up we'll call you on the next class and I was like okay so this really? the second time oh yeah second time comes around which is very unusual they needed paramedics very bad this is does not happen today. Does not. <laughs> mm-hmm. So they called me a second time, and I was comfortable and enjoyed Hayward Fire. It, again, lots of fire, lots of medical, and mm-hmm. really great people to work with in the department, and a really great community to work for. So I was a little torn. So I was like, ah, you know what? I, I, I'm still not. I, I'm still not sure if I want to come to San Francisco. I mean, this was really fast. travel We're talking within two weeks of hearing about this, putting an application in and go, okay, you're you're ready. We're going to put you in this class. So then they called me again. And I remember it vividly because I just got off for like four days in a row at, at Hayward. I was completely tired. We were running like 21 calls a day at, at station one in Hayward. So you do the math on that and um, the phone rings and I'm, I'm groggy. I look at it. I see it's San Francisco. I answer it and they offer it again. And I go, well, you know, can I call you back and think about it? And the person says, well, this is our third time asking it. That's all you get. So after this, we're not going to be calling anymore. And I was like, um, okay, I guess it's a yes, I'm in. And uh, that that was the, uh, the fast track. So we started off in uh, San Francisco solely on the medic unit. And um, we all knew, and I say we because there was a collective group of um, lateral uh, firefighter paramedics from uh, agencies all over the United states that that took this opportunity um, to work there and it was a new system it was new to San francisco there was tensions and there was there was issues you know with the the unions uh the dph medics transferring over the the lateral firefighter paramedics coming over um, people that are from Departments that are structured with with dedicated ICS going to a department that has a playbook, and every engine coming into an incident has a rule and responsibility. So lots of little nuances and changes that that you had to adapt to, but the most important thing is the call volume was just absolutely insane. So on a medic unit in in 2000 to about 2004, uh, we were running, and I was working. I was uh, all, the downtown ambulances on um, medic one medic three medic 41 we were running 30 to 40 medical calls in a 24-hour period Um, and it got to a point where where there was a mandatory two-hour break if you hit uh, i think it was was 16 or 26 calls yeah 16 so every 16 calls you ran you would have to take a two-hour break well that didn't work out well if your engine's going to a medical aid in your district, and you're sitting there taking a nap on a chair or, or whatnot. It, <laughs> there, were some, there were some people that would do it, but myself and the people that I was working with, my partners, we were like, no, we're just we're going to ride through it. Um, so that eventually evolved into a fire based or an engine based paramedic program as well around 2004 where we were splitting our ships. You'd do two, two watches on ambulance. You'd do another watch on an engine. Um, you'd get you some really good experience on, on both ends. And then we did our truck time. So we were able to get a six month break. I was very fortunate uh based off again politics and, and uh our our amazing uh union that we have in san francisco as i did my first truck time but when i did my truck time they had to pull me off to go on the medic unit so many times during that six month period and not just me a number of people the union fought and says nope if we're we have a standard and the standard is that they do a uh, full truck time so that they can be truck operators if needed so they need to redo their truck time uninterrupted. So I got an entire year in the Marina district on truck 16 with probably what I would say is one of our best officers at the time it was Jeff Burns, who was extremely detail oriented, a craftsman, um, just an all around really nice guy, but super professional and extremely knowledgeable. So a year on a truck with him and the crew in that district just, Throwing ladders every day, running calls was just a, an amazing experience. It really uh, brought back that reason why we are public servants for me after being in this loop of running 20 to 30 medical calls a day, um, you know, going on fires, which on the medic unit, again, and I'll tell this with all sincerity and then tell people not to do it because you never want to freelance. But on the medic unit in the early 2000s, when you arrived on scene of a fire first, because you were basically roving or on patrol, going back and forth from the hospitals to the calls, trying to get back to the stations, uh, there's a lot of fire to be had. And the first engine would roll up and you would attach yourself to that first engine and you'd be on a hose line and you'd be there for an hour and a half working with that engine company uh and just got a lot of different experience with different building types, different scenarios, different situations, inclines below grade, above grade, high rises, basement fires, uh you name it. Uh we we were basically um pulling fires left and right on top of our medical aids. Um so that leads into roughly around 2006 or so, where we started to evolve into a second-tier EMS system. So all the original firefighter paramedics were going to be transferred and only working on the engines. Uh, they also evolved into what was called a, um, I believe it was a EMS EMT uh, 2P, which is you're a paramedic that you can work on the rescue squad or a truck. Um, but every other couple, every third shift, you had to work on an engine as a paramedic. Uh, it's kind of like a relief stance. And that evolved into what we currently have, our current system, system, which is our uh, dynamically deployed uh, single-function uh, EMS system, which uh, employs EMTs and paramedics that are not firefighters. However, off of seniority, when we have a class, we fill that class, that firefighter academy class with 10% of our EMS staff to fulfill the, att- the attrition for our firefighter paramedics, which works out really well. So roughly about 10 to 13 uh, of our EMTs or, or paramedics off of our ambulances for each one of our academy classes can, can go into um, that role. And we even give them a miniature pre-academy before that so that they can evaluate if they're physically fit for it and if they want to to pass this this class and, and put in for the next class, if it's something for them. Because uh, I think anybody who's been in the fire service for over a decade has probably seen the recruit come in and just kill it in the academy in a good way, and they go out to the field and they have their first fire or they see their first trauma or they see their first death, and they're like, you know what? Mm-hmm. Not for me. I've, I've seen it twice in my career with really – amazing, dedicated, good people that are the top of their class and they get that first experience and um it's not for them. So we reevaluate that so that we can make sure that we're getting people who know exactly what um what the mission is and, and what the job entails. So that kind of led up to a couple of other items collaterally is I talked about how busy it was in, in the, two th- the early 2000s, uh, 2004s, and, and all that. So around 2001, I got in a motorcycle accident, and that put me out of service for five months. And the uh, police officers who arrived on scene ran my license and they said you got firefighting endorsement are you a firefighter so i'm a firefighter paramedic and i had you know i had an open uh, clavicle fracture and the the guy starts making fun of me you know and in a in a completely professional way right and so we're bantering back and forth it's obviously he's distracting me from my obvious injury and and uh, taking my mind off of the the thing and at the hospital he's doing his report and he goes you know what? You'd make a great police officer. How, you're probably going to be off for six months. We have a reserve program. Uh, we're, I'm going to enroll you in it. I'm going to leave the paperwork here. But you have to remember, <laughs> at the point at the hospital, I got like five milligrams of morphine in me. I'm sitting on a bed, and all I'm saying is, "Oh, great! That sounds like a great job. Let's do it." So, uh, and they were recruitment and retention
1: was, at its finest, huh?
2: Oh yeah. So. <laughs> So as you recall, I started my, my career at 14 as a law enforcement uh, explorer uh, cadet with Pastor Woods Police Department, and I was still passionate about that. And I was actually thinking about, you know, all these medical emergencies we go to, all these traumas, all these car accidents, wouldn't it be great to do preventative stuff like law enforcement, be able to stop it before it happens? So that light bulb came on, and I said, yeah, let me see how I like it, and uh, I loved it. Um, you know, I'm working nine days a month at the fire department. I took my classes, uh, for law enforcement in, in, um, uh, sections. They call them, uh, LD sections, uh, you know, level mm-hmm. one, level two, level three, and, uh, killed it, uh, and, you know, top of the class in those and, and just really enjoying it. Uh, then, then the ego hit and, and the, uh, what would you call the, uh, peer pressure, and the police officers were like, well, you know, if, if you ever want to be taken seriously, you got to go to a full academy, and that, it's, that's nonsense, so anybody listening to this, it's complete nonsense, but I hook, hook, line and sinker, hook, line and sinker, so I enrolled in a one-year weekend-based police academy that gives you your full police academy certification. And uh, that was in Monterey and went with a group of amazing people that are working throughout the Bay Area to, to date and uh, graduated number two in the class. And in law enforcement, when you graduate high up, everybody comes after you. We want you, mm-hmm. we want you, we want you. And um, although I was working you know, for a, a couple of years uh, as a reserve with Pleasanton Police, uh, mental park police came up and they said, you know, we, we have permanent part-time, you'll be a regular police officer, you just have to do a full time academy, um, line it up, make it happen, and we'll hire you and we pay. And I was like, wait, 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 what, you pay? <laughs> so there's was, there was the other huck. So uh that was in two thousand and six and I've been uh working uh part-time at that agency um ever since as well. Uh in moving that forward now with with that, that knowledge base and my fire knowledge base within that time span and yes believe it or not there was a couple hours a day that were free i was able to obtain my um associate's degree in criminal justice and then move on to get my wow. um that, get my bachelor of science in in uh, criminal justice as well um and within those classes uh, you know, FEMA classes pop up and, and they're free and it's in San Diego or it's in Las Vegas or somewhere that's like, wow, that's a great place. Let's go take a class there. Well, one of those was PIO. And we then fast-tracked to 2015 where we had the 50th anniversary of the Super Bowl in San Francisco, and we didn't have a dedicated full-time PIO. So uh, our chief's office did a query who can we get? Who would be a good fit? Who's got the certificates? Um, and I had, uh, you know, my level one and level two PIO certificate. So they called me in and I remember I'm working at downtown. So the busiest engine in America at the time, engine one. I've been there for nine years and anytime anybody from engine one gets called to, well, I'd say 99% of the time you get called to the headquarters, just out of the wind, you did something. So they called up, yeah, we want to come to headquarters at at 1 o'clock, talk to the chief, and I'm sitting there with all my crew members going, what did we do? And we're actually going through the logbooks trying to figure out what we (laughs) did. You know, walk in there, and the chief's sitting in there, and and our finance person sitting in there, and and, uh, our administrative uh, assistant, uh, Mindy Talmadge, who, God bless her, was up until my position, she was the recruitment officer. She was the administrative aide to the chief. She was the public information officer. Um, she was the community outreach officer. Prevention. I mean, she had all these hats and titles just due to years of budget cuts and, and the, uh, uh, the downfall of the economy from 2008. And her eyes were just super big, you know, and you can basically sit at her and she's like, you would love this position, John. You can work days, you get a car, you can make your own program. So I'm sitting there and I'm selling it. So I think you're seeing a trend here, right? The hook, line and sinker. Yeah. So I took, I took the hook, I bit and and I got pulled in and um, basically said at that meeting, I said, can I, can I go home tonight Um, you know, uh, speak to my partner, talk about, you know, the position, the impact it's going to have, you know, going from nine days a month, which is what I've done my entire life since 18 years old, to working five days a week. So I called up uh, PIOs, I called up LA, didn't know them, called them up, God bless them, they answered the phone, they gave me good information, called New York, uh, talked to uh, an individual there, they gave me great information. Um, and was able to get uh, an individual from Sacramento, a PIO, and and the three of them all have the exact same information. Here's what you need for a great PIO program, and the PIO from Sacramento said it best. He goes, how many items do you have listed so far? And I go, I got 52 items. He goes, if your chief gives you half of those items, you can do your job. If she says no to less than half of those, you can't do your job, don't take take the position because you're not gonna have the support. And I went in and I, gave, I had the list to, to my chiefs. I said, Here, here's what I need to do the job effectively. I got 90% of the list, if not, if not more. Right, right. No questions asked. Yep, sounds great. Uh, go for it. So that leads into um, – the, the phone beeped. Are you still there? Yes. Good. Um, that leads into Super Bowl 50 and my first introduction to uh, PIO and, you know, basically representing the chief of the department uh, on the the command staff, you know, directly below on the ICS chart um, and learning the position. And it was mostly admin for a couple of weeks uh, dealing with uh, Super Bowl 50 and other incidences that were happening in San Francisco. And at the same time, about two weeks into it, we started having these massive fires in the mission district. And there's speculation from the supervisor, speculation from the community, um, false perceptions that it's caused by, you know, uh, you know, gentrification or arson or pushing out people. And our job is not to say yes or no, it's, it's, that's not what's causing it. Our job is to ensure the public's trust and get the right information to the right people at the right time. And that's what we needed to do in these circumstances, not only on scene of these fires, but behind the scenes after the fires and before the fires. Hopefully we could prevent them, but in a perfect world, but unfortunately we still have them, obviously. Um, and that made me realize that you know I need relationships with my supervisors, my supervisors aides, community-based organizations, uh, emergency uh, disaster preparedness groups, other city agencies. So I started to reach out and make connections with other city agencies and community-based organizations uh in outreach and the 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 tie in is the community's not getting educated as much as they should. And I looked at our current education model, and it was basically, well, we'll hold our prevention department, will hold a prevention class at one location, but people who live in the Sunset District or the Richmond District, it could take them two hours to get there for a, a four-hour presentation on something. It wasn't feasible. So part of my inception into a, forming a community-based organization, of uh, safety, uh, fair program was exactly that we called them battalion safety fairs and we did our first one in uh, Chinatown and I brought in our paramedics to teach stop the bleed and hands-only CPR I brought in uh, multilingual prevention officers so we can speak to uh, the community in different languages we had smoke alarms Carbon monoxide alarms. We had printed material that I had to find, develop. Uh, thank you, NFPA, if you're listening, because we took a lot of your content um, with with assistance from uh, individuals, the subject matter experts that we were able to speak with, um, and we put put this all together. And we we had our first safety fair, and we had over 500 people in a one hour period, um, wow. it just inundated. So uh, we did this right in front. So a lot of these people weren't people who were coming to the fair, like, hey, we knew about it. They were walking by and they stopped. Now, I, I mentioned one thing that was just a afterthought was the second language. You know, I had Chinese um, prevention mm-hmm. officers, I had a, a Latino firefighter. Um, I believe I had a Russian firefighter. And what was interesting <laughs> is I saw this young lady looking at the material and you could, you can just read people. And I was like, that person is trying to figure this out. I need to go talk to her. To her. And I go, hi, ma'am. How are you? Introduce myself. And she didn't speak English. She spoke Chinese. And she looked at me and she put the paper down and she started to walk away. So I grabbed my firefighter who speaks fluent Chinese. And I say, Hey, can you just take this paper that the one that was in Chinese that she didn't see and just give it to her and see if she needs anything. She stayed. She learned CPR she learned Stop the Bleed, she she got a free smoke alarm to take home, she had a smile on her face. So that language access and that connection to the community, the light bulb came on that one hour, 500 people, first time ever, we have to do this all the time. So we expanded that program to our the first year, we have 10 battalions, so we did all 10 okay. battalions. And then for October, we did not do a time because of uh, fire prevention month. We just um, added it in there. And then for May, because it's EMS week, we added one in May so we can cover all 12 months. And that worked and it evolved into more robust programs and more needs for the community. Uh, To where we are now, where we do these safety fairs, but we also will go to events at request when we're available to do so. So now you're probably saying, well, how do you do that with just one person? Because remember, just one PIO, community outreach, homeland security, you know, all the titles that we have in this position. Well, really,
1: before you you do that, can you tell us what it is that you have going on? So at the fairs, what, what topics are you covering? So um, you know, is is it prevention? You know, is is it injury prevention? I mean, you mentioned CPR, right? The young lady there took the CPR program. But what type of uh, messages are you trying to push during those fairs?
2: So um, so we have two things. We have we have a, a prevention office um, of education that is funded through our Department of Building Inspections and they basically only give presentations to high-rise occupancies or access functional need um, occupancies and they have a one hour dedicated presentation. So at all of our fairs which are now three hours uh, or four hours depending on on the the, uh, population, we will do one of those lectures and we will let people know that at this time we are going to have the one hour presentation that you can watch, and we have the uh, audio boxes, so we have translators, so it doesn't matter what language you wow. speak, our presenters speaking in English, but you're going to hear it in your language. We're going to to do our best to make sure that that occurs. Uh, in addition to that, we have our, our uh, recruitment officers speak for about 15 minutes to a half hour, depending on the demographics. And we we relate this to if we're we're talking to a group of senior citizens, we still have a recruitment officer talk. And we push this. We say if you have a child at home, if you have a son, a daughter, a grandson, a neighbor who wants to be a firefighter but thinks that they can't because of this barrier, this barrier, this barrier, it's nonsense. We're going to give you the information, the tools, and the resources to take to them. We ask that one Person, you go to and talk to so that we can help expand our community, uh, you know, first responders. So that's a a huge, important role. The other item is the public information officer, myself, will speak uh, and let the public know about how they can stay informed with our Twitter emergency uh, uh, access information and public education information. Uh, We utilize Citizens app for on-scene actual emergencies for uh, filming and sharing what other viewers are filming, which expands the transparency of an incident. Uh, You know, Instagram, Facebook, all these items that we can provide to them, and also to let them know that we are part of their neighborhood and their community. And then we have our NERT coordinator or a NERT representative give another 15 to 30-minute speech. As well. Now, this is all within a separate location within our safety fair. So, collaterally to that, we also have a number of booths out that have stop the bleed training that our paramedics and our EMTs from our EMS division will teach. We have hands-only CPR, um, and we can teach. We can. We're not. We're not certifying people in these items. We're educating people. Mm -hmm. To save somebody's life or to give them a better chance when paramedics arrive on scene, it can take less than one minute for you to do this procedure and it's going to save somebody's life. We also do the smoke detectors and and how to place them, where to place them, uh, how to check them. And if you live in the city and you can't afford one, we're going to give you one before you leave. And same thing with our carbon monoxide as supplies last. So we, we, Uh, rely heavily on donated smoke and carbon monoxide detectors, but we also purchase a small amount as well. And uh, we're up to a point now where that we're pretty sufficient on being able to provide um, about a 1,000 smoke alarms and roughly about 300 to 400, depending on the year, carbon monoxide to our community members. um, And those save lives uh, without a doubt. And it gives people a peace of mind. So Also, when we're giving people smoke alarms or carbon monoxide detectors, in San Francisco specifically, we have ordinances where the property owner is responsible to have those in their buildings for for their tenants, if they're a tenant. They're also responsible to have checks on those every year, and they're also responsible to have a known safety plan or escape plan for the tenants. So we ask people when they're getting it, do you have this – has this been told to you at your high-rise building or your, your three-story building or where, wherever you're living at? And we were seeing a trend of, nope, not really. We, we, we haven't seen that, and, and I really need one. So we still give them the extinguisher, but we ask them to give us the address and the location of that area, and we take it as an actual – Complaint, and we will send an inspector at a later date to that location really? to do an inspection. And we have found and mitigated a lot of issues that otherwise would never have been noted. And a lot of it, again, it's not it's not um, you know due negligence uh, out out of want and desire by a property owner. It's unknown. I did not know that and so we based our videos and presentations to our homeowner groups, we have business groups, started to build a really good rapport with our neighborhood groups. We have a NERT program that's independent from me a lot of places called the CERT program, citizens emergency mm-hmm. response team or community emergency response team. And there it's a it's a great vested tool to prepare our community for disaster um, but it also was a great resource for all these neighborhood groups. So we started hitting those neighborhood groups and started to do the same presentations and ask them what their issues are. And, I mean, the list goes on. It's, it's this evolving door uh, that led to, you know, we went to Mariloma Park and they are like, well, the trees are, are, haven't been pruned and, and the weeds are heavy and every 4th of July the, the, the mountain burns. So we're like, wow, you're right. So then we started to address that and came with a, came up with a wildland medication program where Parks and Recs and our housing department that has the majority of the open space, uh, land worked with us to come up with plans to mitigate that, but also a system for the community to report that any time of the year and a better system to make sure that property owners with open lots or uh, city agencies with open lots would be held accountable if they didn't, uh, you know, rectify or mitigate it within a a certain time span. So the, the ball of progression was really working well and has been really working well. And one of my, um, Ways that I can gauge this is when I first started in 2015, we, we physically touched about, we as a department, about 2,000 people a year with, with factual community education and prevention material. Um, for, for a city that has a resting nighttime population of 850,000 and up to 3 million during the day. So we were like, we can do better. So now we have a system where we can track it uh, in our – we call it HRMS systems. It's a computerized tracking system for basically everything okay. in our department. And we are averaging anywhere between 10 to 25,000 physical contacts a month um, with it. Now, Incredible. obviously, with with COVID right now, my numbers went down, but but we're seeing that. Another factor that we saw is when, when I started in 2015, we had a lot of coastal rescues along our coastline. So I started to do some investigation into
1: that and
2: learned and what, what I
1: had to heard... What's that? Oh, oh, sorry. So so those types of, you know, ocean rescues, you know, that, that seems very <laughs> specific to like New England, right? And then when you go to California, you, you hear about those in San Diego and up in San Francisco, your area. So what what is a coast rescue, and um, does that only impact local folks, or is that uh, tourists who are coming in as well? Just just curious. So great questions, and I'll, and I'm glad
2: you asked because I will hit on that. So uh, we we do not have lifeguards in San Francisco. We have rescue swimmers our um the majority if not all of our coastline is national park service land and our um, ocean rescue is our lifeguards they're they're national park service lifeguards but we do not have towers and we actually ask people not to swim in our beaches specifically ocean beach because it is so dangerous and the uh, locals have expressed that if we say we have lifeguards at the beaches, it would might it might bring more people to the beaches thinking it's a safe beach mm-hmm. so we call we call our equivalent of a lifeguard, which is the same certification same training it's it's the same thing with a different name rescue swimmer and ocean patrol for our national park service members um so our ocean beach in San Francisco, and we have a couple of beaches. We have ocean beach, we have Baker beach, China beach, um Christie field, um coastline and beach. And then we have our, our bay our, our bay within um the mouth of the golden gate bridge going all the way to the Oakland borders and all the way to the San Mateo County line borders. So <clears throat> we were seeing that we're having a lot of rescues, but even more shockingly, a lot of fatalities for it. So we started a, a campaign where we came up with flyers in multiple languages, started working with our local surf groups, uh, our our local neighborhood groups along the coastline, and we're actually getting surfers to help spread our information. Now, our social media, which we started in November of 2015, uh, we started to start pushing all these incidents, including surf rescues. And a board of supervisor at the time, roughly uh, mid 2016, had some concern as to why we were having a rise in surf rescues and fatalities. And so, well, we're not having a rise. We're just we're, we're making it known to to the world. You know, we want people to stay away from the beach during a rescue. We want people to know that there's a rescue, and we're going to push out safety information such as rip currents and sneaker waves and hypothermia, um, all the things that go around working in a coastline and that supervisor uh, convened a forum to look into the issues related to the coastal rescue which eventually evolved to us getting four new brand new coastal rescue units Uh, and at the time our units were uh, decades old for coastal rescue so it was it was a huge win for us that basically by just doing prevention and education and uh, pushing out on social media this is what we're doing It was able to get our civic leaders notified and engaged and our community notified and engaged. And it led to a massive positive equipment, um, you know, resource for us to go out. And we've seen a decrease in our rescues, but we've seen even more of a decrease in our fatalities uh, since 2015. Um, And... We have a great working relationship now with National Weather Service, with National Park Service. Uh, National Park Service is is on our, you know, our uh, uh, command channels and our control channels. And uh, we share collaterally all of our safety information. We work together. It's just a great system and tool now that has enhanced the safety of our community and our visitors to our beaches. And you asked the question earlier, is this just our locals? And no, it's not just our locals. Actually, the majority of our rescues for our coastlines and our bay are people visiting from outside of San Francisco. So, on a typical hot day in San Francisco, so we're going to say about 80 degrees, it's going to be triple digits, maybe 10 miles if at, if that outside of San Francisco. So, going into uh, the the east portion of oakland and then out to the central valley and inland empire you're looking at 100 105 degree weather so what are you going to do i'm going to go to the beach and cool off (laughs) so how do we address those people and how do i reach those people so that started uh, a process where uh, i met uh, another great pio uh, betsy burkhardt in walnut creek and she had established and was in the process of forming a, what we call Bay Area Joint Information System Network, which has evolved into a network that we actually utilize, uh, training. We have monthly meetings so all the PIOs in the region can get together and talk and share what, what everybody's doing and everybody's on the same page. And we were able to come up with a system to reach the PIOs in Sacramento, uh, in the Inland Empire. Stanislaus County, San Joaquin, Stockton, Fresno, the the places where we're seeing our victims are coming from and asking them, are you on social media? Great, you are. We're going to tag you. Please retweet our information. Please share our information because your community members, the people that live in your city, are coming to our city and they're getting injured or they're dying. So help us expand our message. And they did. And we have had people, me personally, at Ocean Beach, as I'm handing out flyers, somebody came up to me with their kids, and they said, no, we, we saw this on social media in uh, uh, Modesto, but we're here anyways, but the kids, and they said, kids, what are we going to do today? And they said, we're going to play on the sand, but we're not going in the water. And I was like, my God, I wish I could videotape that with your kids right now because that's amazing. They didn't want to get videotaped, so I was a little bummed out. But um, wow. that's that's actual proof that that actually works and, and that your system is working. So um, and across the board to other emergencies, you know, I have a great story uh, to share for our safety fair stuff. So remember, we were talking about exit drills. So roughly, uh, I believe this was around 2018. We had a safety fair um, in our Battalion 9 area, which is it's a uh, kind of the the southern uh, western portion of our town. And we had all our tables set out. And this lady came up, and she she I saw her eye lock me at the very beginning of the the event and she would not leave me alone so anybody who's in public safety we all know that we're at a point where we're like, yeah we're going to go through this but then we're like oh my gosh this person is just going to be with me the whole day so let's just make it fun right let, let's let go through all the training with her and really push her because she started her introduction off with me I live in the high rise on Chumacero, and you guys have a fire alarm every day and it wakes me up and it's so annoying. So I just don't leave. And I was like, my gosh, well, number fire. one, it's not us. I said, it's, it's gotta be something within your system. So we're going to work on that. We're going to make sure that we start to do some prevention in that building with cooking safety. We're, I'm going to find out why are we having all these smoke, these smoke alarms go off in your building. But I'm going to beg you at the end of what I'm going to show you that if your smoke alarm goes off, you have a plan and you execute that plan, and you leave your building until we say it's clear. I said, w- if I spend time with you, will you do that? And she said, yes. And we went through smoke alarms. We went through carbon dioxide, escape planning, how to do an escape plan, a go bag, an emergency kit, everything. You can't make this up, okay? At 5 o'clock in the morning, the next morning, I get woken up from my pager, second alarm fire at that building. So I go there. Out. And that luckily, you know, it was a good fire. I believe it was on the, the fourth, the fourth floor, uh, you know, one, one, one unit. It, uh, auto exposed laptop to, to the unit above with minor damage. And I'm sitting there and I'm about ready to get a presser with, uh, a news channel and they start to go live. And in the corner of my eye, I see the same lady in a robe, you know, like a, a morning robe. Beelining towards me. And you know, y- your mind starts thinking, I was like, okay, she's going to tackle me. What's going on? I can see this person beelining. I-, I know my experience that I had with her yesterday. And she comes up to me and she points and she goes, you. And she goes, and she had a smile and it was a, an, an excited, happy voice. She goes, I did what you told me to do, even though I didn't want to. The smoke alarm went off, and I left. And she goes, guess what? And I go, what? She goes, I'm the apartment directly above the last apartment that got, that got uh, damaged from the fire. And she goes, and there was smoke up there that they're getting out of my room. She goes, you're right. I might have died. Now, in this circumstance, I don't think she would have died, but I'm glad she had that mindset because that's what we need people to do is to mm-hmm. evacuate when, until the alarms go off. And that right there, again, was proof that that one person that I touched, that we touched as a department, got the message, and now that message has expanded hopefully hundreds if not thousands of times to people, and we still have to continue to push that same message because it saves lives. The prevention, the education, the pre-planning takes you from a reactive response to a proactive response, and the proactive response saves lives.
1: So, as a PIO, I mean, how do, you, how do you take that message and get it out to the citizens so they understand the importance about showing up to these battalion safety fairs and then also passing it along through the chain of your department? I mean, like you said, obviously, your outreach is, has expanded tremendously. And that's one of the things that they they touched on in the submission for your award is the amount of, of of folks that you have, you know, had an impact on in, in the few years that you've been in this role. Um but how do you how do you take that woman's message and relate that to the the community so they understand the importance about coming to these there um, the safety pairs? So it's really it,
2: it's it's a combination of tenacity and, and professionalism, and um, <laughs> we 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 put we push the message out on social media, we push the message out on on uh, media press, press releases, but we also have expanded to, remember earlier I said community-based organizations and getting to know them. So what I wanted to do is make sure that our community-based organizations got involved. So now we have community-based organizations that when we have a safety fair, they help us walk the district that we're doing the safety fair in a few days beforehand, And we hand out between 500 to 1,500 flyers uh, throughout the community that we try to put two to three languages on that one flyer with the same message. And we look at the demographics for that area to find out what the three primary languages are to make sure that we're addressing those specific topics. Additionally, what we started around 2000, uh, the end of 2016, is we were seeing not only in our department, but hearing in other departments, my God, the kids that are in our academy, they can't, They get out. They do good in the academy. They get out in the field and start their proby times and someone starts talking to them or we're telling them they got to take a blood pressure. They're like a computer. And how do we fix that? How do we address that? So we spoke to our city college fire program, which we have a great uh, collaborative uh, uh, connection with already and said, Hey, is there any way that we can get city college fire science students to volunteer under the guidelines mm-hmm. of city college so that they're covered with insurance and they get some sort of credit. And it was an overwhelming yes. And this is from a retired of uh, San Francisco fire captain, Jim Connors runs the fire science program now for city college. And he, he, I, I worked for him uh, for a couple of years and, and I, I, I count him as one of my greatest mentors because of his professionalism and his, yeah, we'll figure out a way and we're going to do it. It's a great idea. And that's exactly what happened. So now we get city college fire science students who are enrolled in fire science programs, or they've completed their fire science program. And we've even got uh, uh, young individuals who are um, through their fire academy and they show up to these safety fairs with us or to other events such as walking neighborhoods with flyers, and they interact and they actually start to open up. And what's, what's great, it's almost like being a parent. You see them on the first day that they show up to volunteer, and they're in the corner, and they're unsure, and they're evaluating the the whole uh, you know experience. And about a month to two months later, you walk in, and here's the same uh fire science student volunteer, having four to five to six people from 80 years old to five years old, teaching them stop the bleed, teaching them about a smoke detector, whatever the topic is, they're completely versed, they're confident, and they're comfortable. And we have hired some of those people that have volunteered just, just out of, you know, the they've been on the list, not saying that this was an advantage for them, but they mm-hmm. went through the process and they got hired. And they have come up to me or some of my coworkers and they have stated, man, I'll tell you what, I said, I saw a huge advantage of knowing how to talk to people when I got into my probie phase based off of my my probie partners that I had at the same station. Thank you very much. So we continue to do that to bring an educational experience for our future firefighters, the people who are gonna save me when I'm at home elderly and retired (laughs) <laughs> those are the people that we're teaching those are the people that we're teaching now how to communicate and the importance of fire prevention and education on top of fire suppression and EMS care, which traditionally gets taught after they get into a fire department. So now we're kind of front loading it so that when they get into the service they'll have an advantage. We have a young man that got hired in Alaska fire. And, uh, he came back from his interview, uh, in Alaska and he goes, dude, because I, th- I think I killed it. And he goes, I started talking about my volunteer time and their eyes wa- got wide open and they go volunteer time. What do you mean? And he started to explain everything. And he goes, they asked me so many questions about what I did and how I did it and how I contributed to the community. He goes, I think I got it. And a few days later we got the phone call and I was kind of a little a, a, a bum because I really wanted him in my department because he was a great asset, but he got hired over there full time. And he was saying, you know what? I really think it was because of what I did here with city college and with San Francisco fire to help me grow my, my toolbox of knowledge to get into the fire service. So again, I mean, what we're doing that is, is great. It, it it's, it's such a full circle. And a lot of the stuff was, was not, here's the plan. Here's what we're going to do. And we want to meet these goals and these agendas. It was simple. We need to get prevention and education material out to our communities and to our visitors. And we need to do it effectively and efficiently with zero budget. (laughs) So how do we do that? And and that's, and that's exactly how this whole thing evolved. Um, I mean, we, we, we've gotten to a point where, we have a hotel council that involves all, uh, you know, uh, multi-thousand uh, rooms in, in San Francisco, and I have a, a contact there. If I have a, a hotel safety, if we have a holiday, uh, if we have a high surf advisory day, and we know we have a lot of people in town at our hotels. It's one email, and then our crews will, will snap a picture at a hotel lobby go, hey, we were on a medical aid, and look what was up on their, their electronic billboard. It was your safety message. And I was like, wow, it works. So there's all these little things that really, really push out and, and contribute. Um, one important thing that I that I think just to share with, with listeners and especially, um, uh, you know, educators of any level is the importance of community-based organizations. So uh, for a fire department, we in San Francisco currently, we're not allowed to, because of liability, go into somebody's house and um, put their smoke alarm up. We can give them one, but we can't install it. Same with a carbon monoxide detector or a fire extinguisher. But we have uh, in my toolbox, I have four organizations now that we can go give somebody this extinguisher and go, are you able to put it up? And if they say no, we give them a card here. You have to fill out some information, but this company, these three community-based organizations will come to you, and they will help you get this installed into your house. And one of those groups will actually go to your house to do the installation and evaluate your needs. If your access functional needs and you don't have a bar in your bathroom to help you go in and out of your bathtub, they will for mm-hmm. free get somebody to go in there based off of the criteria that they have set forth independent from us. So this, again, that simple one-person touch that you're that you're going to and giving a piece of education and prevention and or the equipment, and you find out by talking to them and letting them know that you care, and they say, well, yeah, actually, I do need some help with this, and then you use your community-based organizations, which are, again, your neighbors and your friends and your community, brings everybody together, which makes everybody more resilient. So when we do have an emergency, I'm going to wrap it into – 2020 pandemic, people know people, people can go to those people to get help, and it decreases pain, suffering, or an inability to get resources or services that one needs if they had not made those connections. And a great example is when we first started in the pandemic for COVID-19, we needed masks, we needed thermometers. And it was a simple mm. phone call from the fire department to get to start the ball rolling for for that, that, that uh, those items. We had a question of, you know, well, people need to stay in their house. How do I how do I know that the 80 year old, 90 year old neighbor is going to get uh, cared for? And our community based organizations picked it up with with that comment. And they started doing campaigns on check on your neighbor, but do it safely. You know, leave a note on the door because of COVID-19 and the social distancing. This was all the beginning phase when we didn't know a lot about these distancing, but we knew that we had to touch those vulnerable populations with the same information we're giving to the non-vulnerable populations, but also get a route to get them services. And I'm, I'm completely confident that had we not started our community-based organizations and our our connections with all of our neighborhood groups and all of our affiliate city agencies uh, aggressively at the end of 2015, we would have been in a far worse position to be able to handle the beginning stages of this pandemic that we saw and the subsequent disasters um, that kind of started to pile up, such as the protests and the riots and the wildland fires and the air Mm -hmm. quality issues and the heat wave issues that we're seeing. Um, with, without those made. So very important to to do that. So if you haven't done that, I just really ask that one thing out of this podcast you do is you make a connection with a community-based organization.
1: And, and how do you, I mean, do you just reach out to them and say, Hey, you know, I'm from fire. And I think there's an opportunity here for a mutual um, a relationship that can benefit, you know, your, attendees members users community uh, people you know whatever whatever their their, their organization is um, is that is that kind of the first step is to reach out to them assuming that not everybody's reaching out to you and, and where do you go in a fire department right if you don't know anything about a fire department but you know you need their help yeah
2: do so, you know just we, oh, yeah. we, we tell people uh, just to call your main line the main line of your fire department and, and just ask say hey we, we would like information on this how do I get it And your department should be able to to direct you to that point. And if, if they don't have a connection, if they don't have a position or they don't have the resources, then the next step is to get involved in your community, your city community, your town, your county, and go to a commission meeting, go to a supervisor or city council meeting and say, hey, I am a community member and I need to have this information. And it's my understanding that we don't have the position or the funding for it. How can we change that? because it's something that I need, and if I need it, I know other people in my community need it. So that's the first step. Um, How we do it, or how I did it, was simply going out to these members, finding out what groups we have from other databases, such as from my NERT group and some other organizations within our city, and simply sending an email or a phone call and introducing myself, this is who I am, this is what we can do, this is what I would like to do. And that evolved into These groups getting more involved with our uh, safety fairs or district safety fairs, getting involved with uh, events during uh, parades or during uh, street fairs, and actually having us come to their neighborhood groups uh, and talk to their association or their neighborhood group or block uh, association on specific topics that are uh, inherent to what they want and what they need. Uh, One example is our Excelsior um community group um I reached out to them they said you know we we need, we're working with Red Cross but we need more volunteers to help us reach uh, getting uh, smoke alarms in people's homes it's a huge issue here and that led to a one day uh, event where again we had our city college volunteers and we had Red Cross volunteers and in one 8 hour day we were able to install 200 smoke alarms um through through that district Um, And let me correct that. We were able to hand out and install with those who needed it to be installed. And that was done by that community relations and that that, uh, collaborative effort to take what we can do and can't do and then say, what can you guys do? And then Red Cross, what can you do? and put that all into one little grouping, which then expanded to this whole one-day process where people at home who mostly were access functional needs, um, you know, they they couldn't afford uh, a smoke alarm, they couldn't afford having it installed, whatever the measures might be, and we came to them, we put it in, and it made our community, that specific neighborhood, a lot safer.
1: That's incredible. I mean that's that's just great, um, and, and you know so like I mentioned earlier on, uh, you know one of the things I just want to kind of mention it. It, it talks about it here is that you've really, you know, you've really set the department way beyond the role of PIO, which I want to get to here in a minute. Um, but it says that you've really become uh, an innovator in the fire service, uh, bringing ideas to the industry that suppresses. Uh, that sometimes suppresses creativity for complacency within the community. Again, that was part of the the, the wording for your submission. Um, well, the submission was made on your behalf. I'm sorry. So it, it sounds like you're real. I mean, you're you're rolling program out after program, and and most of these are programs that you started. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, you start from scratch. I should say.
2: Yeah, we did, we we started these from scratch, but it's all it, it's important uh to, to always understand that you know, an idea is is um is harvested with not just one person it has to be a team so you get an idea you get the buy in from from your supervisor in in my case the chief of the department um and then you start moving forward with it and you try to bring more people in uh to get this rolling so uh, all these all these items as as aggressive and proactive as they are they can't get off the ground or be sustainable without the help of your team, which is our entire department, but also our community and having that, that joint community and uniform public servant partnership or collaborative relationship is essential uh, to making sure that the programs continue and continue to grow based off of the needs that we have to hear from the community.
1: Right. Thanks, Jonathan. So let's jump into PIO, right? That's that's how I, I, I came to meet you several years ago. And and, and again, you've done a, a great job. And, and again, it was, it was also echoed in the submissions for the Community Service Awards at growing the PIO duties. Um, and, and so I just want to again read a, a quick line here so folks understand you know what, what you've done uh, during your time the last few years. Um, It says, the department has had several PIOs over the years, um, all who have done good work. Uh, But it is here where Lieutenant Baxter took the basics of informing the media of emergent incidents and grew it into the renowned community engagement and fire prevention success that it is today. So you've talked about some of that, you know, throughout this podcast, the the different programs that you've got, Um, and it's certainly different than the traditional PIO role of just working with the media, you know, and and, and with social media and everything else, um, and you know, I work in media. There's been a decline in the number of folks in media and, and the and the ability for the media to provide as much content as they used to. So they rely on PIOS, and really, the PIO is a media relations person before, but now it's truly a PIO. So talk a little bit, if you if you would mind, about some of the the programs that you've done working with the media, um, but just on the public information side about current incidents. And I know you mentioned, you know, like with Ocean Rescue, um, I, 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 I love looking at like San Diego, you know, like they put out a, a good morning tweet um, that gives you the the temperature, the waves, the, um, you know, the wildfire um, conditions for the day. Um, it's, it's much different on the West Coast versus a lot of other parts. And of course the ocean plays a big role in that. Your role as PIO in, in working with the media. Um, let, let's talk about that a little bit. And also, um, it mentions that you were involved in the department's PI. am sorry, sorry, social media policy. Um, can you talk about that a little bit as well?
2: Yeah. So the the first item was was getting to know your media, uh, and and becoming their friend, um, but not necessarily the friend that's going to be like buddy buddy friends, but. To let them know that you're that you're here for them, and you are hopeful that they will be there for you, but collectively we have to both be here for the the community or the public. And that that's the 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 emphasis of uh, transparency to make sure that we can get the the factual embedded information out to the public, but also have it across different platforms so people can make their opinion and their determination uh, off of an incident. Uh, So going out to uh, my media partners and just going to instances and talking and setting up media staging areas and having availability was uh, a huge positive step in getting to the, the trust um of media individuals and then learning the immediate the individuals that you can trust and, and learning the ones that you need to watch a little bit. And I'm I'm saying that in, in full transparency and honesty that there in my experience as the PIO I, I have had uh events where what I said was uh cut and pasted into a article that necessarily wasn't the content discussed. And um, those people, you can't sit there and go, okay, well, I'm going to shun that person and never work for that person. You have to build that trust. And that's what I try to do is, you know, not throw a cold shoulder because you're still at the end of the day, a public servant, even to the media personnel. So how can you make, you basically form that better relationship to ensure that the right information gets out? And If you go through my Twitter feed, you'll see one or two instances throughout my five-year career where I basically called out uh, an individual report and said, this this report uh, stated this. It's not factual. The facts were given to this reporter. Here are the facts. If you have any questions, please email me here. Um, And that's an extreme uh, that we had to go to in some cases, but it also shows that you're not going to stand for your department to be misrepresented or your community to get misinformation. But at the same time, you have to be cognitive of the need for uh, people to have different avenues for thought process. So it's a a, a very interesting (laughs) position to be in, but at the end of the day, the right information to the right people at the right time being factual and honest. Uh, across the board and then on top of everything there professionally um so moving fast forward to that is how do we get information out during a scene as one pio for this department and having to, to decide um am i going to say here and tweet am i going to say here and email i'm going to uh, do a press release because again there's a lot of duties for one person to do in this department and that goes into our social media, so we utilize Twitter predominantly for, for information. We've recently started using Citizens app as it's a great tool with transparency, because not only is, am I as a public agency putting out my video, It's attached to a streamlined thread that goes to my Twitter feed that also has comments and views and opinions from people who are sitting at the same scene or a few blocks from the same scene who are videotaping and taking pictures and giving their perspective and their opinions of it. So it allows for a really good open source um uh, viewing uh, option for individuals to get and collect their information, with ours being the verified factual, you know, green little checkbox that this is the verified <laughs> verified uh, government agency video. Um, fast-tracking that to social media policies within the department, so a lot of the issues come from internal and external. Uh, what can, what your members do and what your members post basically can make a PIO's weekend or nighttime. Uh, Wonderful or horrible, uh, to to, to basically correct things that are being put out there. And having a social media policy is a double-edged sword. I mean, without it, you have more Mm -hmm. leeway, and with it, you're constrained to the policy. And it took us about three and a half years to get our policy approved. Um, And it is approved, and and I feel that it's a very fair and collective one. And we did this – I did this initially with my union. Sat down with my union, came up with a policy, came up with what we want, and trust me, there was a, there was a heavy wish list on both ends. It goes goes through a, a process of being vetted and going to the command staff and going to the city attorney and, and coming back, and it came back to what we have currently now, which is our social media policy for our members to basically to be held accountable for. Uh, moving forward uh, to ensure the safety and the integrity of our department, our department's members, but also the privacy of the community that we're serving, um, most importantly. Um, so, those are all very important aspects. And the other thing is uh, a, a website. <laughs> so, if you have a department in 2020, you need to have a good, proactive, easy-to-use website. Now, if anybody goes to our website right now, you're probably going to say this is outdated, everything, there's things that haven't been changed all this in in, in weeks. And that's because I'm excited, extremely excited to say that we're weeks away from launching our brand new website, um, which we've been working oh, with an uh, organization called uh, Five Paths with us, who has been absolutely amazing um, to get this up and running. And that's take it took me five years to get the funding and the approval. And, and when I'm saying me, I'm saying the department because it's a collective effort from our finance director, Mark Corso, and our IT director, Jesus Mora, uh, and myself. And what was funny is about it, uh, probably about seven months ago, um, our IT director, uh, Jesus Mora, was like, hey, John, what do you think of our website? And I started laughing I go, What do you think of our website? He goes, I think we could do better. And I said, yeah, I do, too. And that got the ball that 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 one one minute conversation fast tracked the ball to where we are now um, with what we're going to have. That's going to be able to be in multiple languages and visual and effective to reach the communities that we serve. So very excited about that as well.
1: That, that's great, Jonathan. And I, I, you know, I can't say thank you enough for joining us today and, and giving us a, a, a glimpse into what you've got going on. So it sounds like from from the day you got involved with public safety until uh, now, you, you really haven't had much time to, uh, to to take a breath. But at the same time, uh, you're you're moving things along and you're making a difference. And I, and when I say you, it's you know you're. Your efforts, right? It, it, it's the department like you mentioned, right? The, the battalion safety fair isn't just done by you; it's done by everybody. But uh, uh, that 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 takes part in it that day. But um, it, you're doing wonderful work for the community, and and, and you know the, the reason that we have you on today is to kind of highlight some of that. So uh, hopefully, some of our listeners uh, give have the opportunity to reach out to you, right? They want to duplicate the programs that you've got. Why reinvent the wheel um, when they can reach out to you? So. Um, can you share your, your email uh, information with them so that they can reach out, some of our listeners will be able to reach out to you about it? Absolutely, and,
2: uh, you know, on the email topic, my my email in our department is our name with the dot in the middle, and that was in the first couple of months, I could see that people didn't know if there was an H or there was an H, and it was confusing, so we made an easy email for our PIO, and for San Francisco, it's fire, P-I-O, at sfgov.org. The media loves it. The public loves it. I get comments weekly. Oh, that's easy. I can remember it. Don't even need to write it down. (laughs) So come up with something easy for your members to be able to get a hold of you with. Great. But, yeah, thank you very much for having me. And um, I am extremely humbled uh, and excited. To, to reward, um, but I also just want to share for my uh, sisters and brothers in the San Francisco Fire Department and, and the community that I enjoy uh, and absolutely love serving in San Francisco that this award is uh, for all of them as well because, uh, again, it's a team effort. Um, but I, I am extremely excited. It was uh, quite a, a, an honor and an exciting phone call to get to, to be mm-hmm. notified of this.
1: Well, Jonathan, thank you so much and, and congratulations. And again, Jonathan is the recipient of the uh, Chief Thomas Carr Community Service Award. Uh, Chief Carr started out in Montgomery County, Maryland, um, where uh, his, his time there was spent really focused uh, on making sure that the members of the department were prepared to work with the community, not just to respond to the emergencies, but to get ahead of, of emergencies, almost, you know, the beginning of community risk reduction before it was put into place. Um, And and that was his whole goal, was to protect his residents. And and, um, I was very fortunate enough to meet Chief Carr when I lived in Maryland. Um, And at at some point, he moved down to Columbus. um, uh, I'm sorry, not Columbus, uh, Charleston, South Carolina, and took over after the Superstore fire. And again, his his goal there was to improve the fire department's uh, working conditions, uh, but then really, you know, get with the community and ensure the community understands what it is they need to do safe. Uh, and that becoming one of the main priorities of the department. So, uh, the, the, the chief car award is, uh, um, just an amazing opportunity to, for us to recognize folks who are getting out in the community ahead of these incidents, um, that, that we do report on every day. Um, it's, it's good to have the saves before they need to be, they need to be had. So, um, Jonathan, thank you so much. I appreciate it. You can find out more information about the awards at firehouse.com slash valor. Um, You can also submit, Uh, the submission forms are already up for this year's uh, um, Valor and Community Service Awards. And you can find a submission nomination, sorry, submission nomination form there. Um, But Jonathan, thank you so much for all the work that you do. We appreciate it. We appreciate the support that you've given Firehouse over the years. Thank you very much.
2: Thank you for having me. Everybody have a great and safe day.
0: This podcast is sponsored by MSA Globe. At MSA, your health and safety drive us to develop advanced safety equipment with performance and protection in perfect balance. Like Globe Athletics, the latest innovation in turnout gear. Developed as Athletic Gear for Firefighters, Athletics uses unique stretch fabrics that provide body-contoured fit for unprecedented range of motion and flexibility. It's lighter weight, less bulky, and provides the protection you need from your Globe turnout gear. Get the full story at msa.com globe.